as he came out you know, in Toronto um, in a lead-up tournament and says, I have set my sights on winning the US Open this year. That's all I need to hear. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the KO Convo. This is going to be a good one because I have the leading tennis strategy analyst in the world, Craig O'Shaughnessy, Australian man, now resides in Austin, Texas. He is uh, quite phenomenal, and in, in his expertise on the tennis game is pretty spectacular. He has coached uh, players such as no, world number one Novak Djokovic from 2017 to 2019. He covers every single Grand Slam and a bunch of the Masters tournaments. Uh, you can certainly find his own um, all of his work on his website BrainGameTennis.com because, as I say, he is the brain behind the game. Um, so, if you're an aspiring tennis player or a tennis fan, I highly suggest you listen to this conversation because it's pretty insightful. And uh, Craig gives a lot of background to what these players are going through, both uh, mentally, emotionally, physically, and the uh, strategies behind some of uh, the matches we talk about today. So, we're going to take a quick, quick break, and then we'll be right back with Craig. Enjoy. Welcome back to the KO Convo. And if you're an, a tennis fanatic like myself, then you got to be super excited for this for this episode. Uh, Craig O'Shaughnessy is with me today, and I could spend an entire episode talking about what the heck he's done for the game of tennis, how many matches he's analyzed, things of that nature. But um, for now, I won't spoil too much. Just call him the brain behind the game. Craig, how are you? Uh, I'm wonderful, thank you. Good morning uh, here in Austin, Texas. Lovely day, and and very enjoyable to uh, catch up with you finally. Yeah, exactly. We finally got you on, so thank you for that. Um, let's just dive right into it. It's I, you know, based on your tweet yesterday, I thought you were gonna take a take a break from tennis and go back into race car driving, but uh, <laughs> clearly that clearly that's not the case. Yeah. Um, I, I do have another another uh, clipping from the paper when I was six, and it's got me. It's got a picture of me driving the Mercedes Benz, and then a picture sitting in the car. So I, I I couldn't dig it out yesterday. I couldn't find that one, but that that one's coming. I I know it's somewhere here in the house. There you go. There you go. I was um, I was actually right before this looking looking at your Twitter, and around eight minutes ago, this is perfect timing. You you posted a, a tweet of your favorite match, which I which I want to dive into because. Mm-hmm. That match, Dustin Brown, 20 uh, uh, defeated Rafa Nadal in 2015 uh, at Wimbledon. Um, it's crazy how you were able to break down and, and really find uh, Rafa's little, not weaknesses, I would say, but um, 
areas you were able to exploit. Yeah, yeah. Especially when uh, on, on his service, when he would serve Deuce, he would always shift to the right a little bit naturally, just instinctively to, yeah. to kind of hide that backhand. Was that something that you and Dustin talked about prior to the match? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's some of the things Dustin was actually already doing. So we talked about it. He goes, yeah, I do that. And I'm like, perfect. But, you know, he's got he's to know before the matches that, you know, th- these things are going to work more than normal. Um, and these other things, you know, maybe not so much. So, you know, the, the fact that Dustin was already standing, it's such a big deal in that match. In the juice court returning, normally the returner is going to have their right foot on the singles line, you know, righty to righty. So when you play a lefty, you know, righties typically don't don't move that much, um, you know, maybe a little bit, but Dustin's way over. I mean, he's way, way towards the middle of the court. And so the, the, what happens there is when Rafa's serve comes down the tee, especially on the second serve where Dustin can be a bit more aggressive, Dustin's able to step forward to the ball. He's able to lean on the ball instead of leaning sideways and catching it late. So if he catches, if he does catch it late, it's probably a weaker ball. It's probably going back to the juice court. And Rafa's probably running around and poleaxing a forehand. Uh, the fact that Rafa's already, um, Rafa's going to go to that same spot, but Dustin's moved over, now means Dustin can step forward to that ball. Dustin can now be on offense. And with Rafa serving and then falling to his right, which is covering the juice court, you know, the ad court straight down the line is wide open for business. And that was a major part of, of, of this final. It wasn't a final, actually. It was the second round. But a, a major part of this match was, you know, let's get all over um, Rafa's second serve, which is a good strategy on its own, but be really specific. Make Rafa have to hit a second serve out wide in the juice, which he really didn't want to. Um, he sticks with down the tee, and Dustin just sitting on it, just you know, hitting return after return straight down the line, and, and winning so many points with that. So, you know, you you've got to rattle the cage uh, in, in a match like this. You know, if if everything's even, Rafa wins. You know, if if, if you just play normal tennis, Rafa wins. You know, ninety nine times out of a hundred. Um, so just don't play normal tennis. Know what Rafa's going to do. Have a plan to disrupt it. And, and, you know, there's your result, you know, Dustin wins in four sets. Yeah. And uh, something I've always liked about Dustin's game, and I think this really helped, helped with the strategy portion of it was uh, besides obviously him being an, an, an entertaining player and an athletic freak was he's got such a short backswing yeah. that's, that's able to really jump on that ball and really take it down and crush it. I mean, <laughs> it's incredible. He's, he's so short and the elbows stay in. Um, but he's able to really accelerate the racket head. So, and, and more importantly, use the energy coming to him. You know, a lot of players today want to just forget about that and create their own energy. But Dustin's really good at using the energy. He stands up in the court. He takes the ball early. You don't need big swings when you do that. And he's, you know, really refined that part of his game well. And then, so Rafa doesn't know, you know, it's great if it goes back to Rafa's backhand. Um, he doesn't know if, if Dustin's going to go there. He doesn't know if Dustin's going to keep going down the line. He doesn't know if Dustin's going to hit a drop shot return. He doesn't know if Dustin's going to hit an approach straight down the middle and come in. So, you know, when you get all of these things going in Rafa's head, it creates confusion. 
um, and you know it, it creates you know doubt. All of a sudden, the pathway forward and the game plan forward to defeat Dustin becomes cloudy. You know things are not clear in the opponent's mind, and once you create um, that dynamic in a match, then you've got a real chance of victory. Yeah, I mean, and. Uh, that just, I mean, you were there. The atmosphere was just incredible. Was, Everyone was going it was nuts. Absurd. It was absurd. Um, it, it was it was absolutely crazy because, you know, in the opening game, Dustin played, you know, he played on, on the second point. He serves and comes in and hits this, you know, roundhouse high backhand volley, you know, high, high backhand volley overhead winner that everybody's like, well, we're – We've never actually seen that shot on Santa Claude at Wimbledon ever. Second point of the match. Then the third point, Dustin goes, I think, you know, 123 down the middle for an ace on a first serve and misses it. So on the second serve, he goes 123 down the middle and actually hits an ace. And everybody's like, pay attention, pay attention. Holy cow, what is going on? So, you know, right from the very beginning, it was, it was you know, the show was on. And the crowd was into it. And the crowd was, you know, they, they didn't, you know, they knew Dustin, you know, played with a lot of flair. Um, but to see it live, you know, obviously a lot of those people are going to be huge Rafa fans. It's going to be massively, you know, supporting Rafa. But even early on, they're like, Dustin, holy cow, we've got a guy here we can get behind that can win this match. You know, a real underdog with monstrous flair out there on the court. And, 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 and so, you know, it's, it's it's actually you know in the last couple of years, unfortunately, there's been few two matches on the big stage that have really brought the crowd in and the energy of the crowd. You can say was unbelievable, was absolutely electric. Um, that's one of the matches I've been at. Maybe maybe the most electric match I've been at. It was it was just every shot and every point. It was you know the hairs are up on the back of your neck. It was uh, it was simply incredible. I, I, probably never <laughs> come across something like that again, but I wanted to share that. You know, I, I was digging through my um, computer archive yesterday and came across that interview. I'm like, yeah, it's a good one to share. So that's, that's what you saw out there on Twitter world this morning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you brought up a great point about how, uh, how everyone, you know, a majority of them are, are Rafa fans and, and how that's an atmosphere you've never experienced before, let alone an upset over Rafa, because we've had upsets at Wimbledon, you know, you got your fellow countryman Kyrgios upset him, people weren't too happy. And then Lucas Rasol did it. People were not very happy about that either. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it, Dustin Brown kid comes out of nowhere. And, uh, and yeah, it was, it, it was just a fantastic match to watch, but um, I did want to talk real quick about, um, and I think this is an awesome, awesome strategy is, is you put out, um, uh, put out a lesson talking about the battle of the four shots, right. Mm-hmm. And, and how you have the serve, the return, the serve plus one and the return plus one. And I was looking back at it and I think a perfect example, uh, about, about this is actually the 2020 Roland Garros final, um, with Nadal and Djokovic and you see Djokovic had 17, I think, I think the numbers, right. 17 errors within those, uh, within those four shots. And Nadal actually had eight winners. Mm-hmm. So that's just a testament. It must be uh, as to how the match can completely change. Yeah. You know, when I first discovered 
this metric, you know, IBM credit in 2015 at the Australian Open. And I saw it, I'm like, what in the world does this mean? I, I don't know what it meant. I, I didn't even know what a zero shot rally was. How is that even possible? So I went and, and asked, you know, I went to IBM and said, how is this happening? And they said, well, you know, I, I said, I watched a point, the serve went in, the return went in, and, there was, and then the next shot was a winner. And I looked for the rally length and it says three. And I looked at the next point, the serve went in, the return went in, and the next shot was an error. And the rally only said two. I said, but, you know, the heading says shots hit in the rally, and those both were, had three shots in the rally. And they said, no, no, rally length is predicated on the ball landing in the court. That's what we're counting. I'm like, guys, that's fine, but you need to tell the rest of the world what you're counting, and you need to put a correct label because you your label is shots, and a shot is the ball hitting the racket. So... You know, there's there's controversy everywhere with this kind of stuff. But um, so also, you know, they they tabulated on the show court, so it wasn't every court, but I'd say it was around eighty percent, eighty to eighty five percent of the matches. Um, and, and then, but they, you know, they have a tournament totals page where you know if something happens in a match, it's going to appear on the tournament totals. Four M winners have it. Everybody four M winners for the tournament. You know, rally length still doesn't appear on the tournament totals page. It's like it's not worth it. Uh, so I, you know, I, I went through every match, um, the men and women, and added it all up. And men was 70, 20, 10. Um, and the women, I think, were, you know, a, a little bit less than that in zero through four, but, but not far off. So, you know, when you first come across these numbers, you don't know what they mean. Um, you know, it, and just to even understand that, you know, on hard courts at the Australian Open, to have seven points out of 10, that have a maximum of just two shots in the court. You know, there's a lot of short rallies that kind of go into our, you know, in our mind and, and they're deleted very quickly. And, you know, we think that short rallies are, you know, a bad because we didn't reach the promised land of the long rally. Maybe they're unforced errors, but it's just the nature of our game. You know, we start with this serve that's so big. It's like an earthquake where we've got this huge bang and then and then it quickly dissipates. You know, the long rallies that that, you know, dominate our practice court aren't that many. So when I was coaching Novak 2017 to 2019, you know, I, I brought this to his attention all the time. I said, the world loves your backhand. You need to hit more forehands. You know, the, the, the math says so. Um, and the world loves you in long rallies and sliding all over the court. I go, I don't care. You beat opponents because you dominate short rallies. So what you're alluding to here is in that in that final against Rafa Roland Garros, Novak got chopped in the short rallies. Game over. Game over. That 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 is by far, you know, the the, the number one correlation between doing something, whether it's hitting less double faults, whether it's hitting more races, whether it's hitting more winners, whether it's winning more baseline points, the greatest correlation between winning and losing in tennis is winning the zero through four rally length. If you see a player has won that, they're winning the match on average 90% of the time. Something typically has got to be weird and unusual, uh, whether it's weather related, whether it's opponent related, um, for a player to win the match and not win the zero through four rally length. So, you know, as soon as you, it's always the number one stat on on a um, on a stat sheet, and and you know you you very correctly identified as a major uh, turning point or a major dynamic of the Roland Garros final. Rafa did great in that area, and 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 Novak Novak certainly didn't. But you know, watching that match, I'm you know most matches you watch 
no, but it's like, I, I, didn't, I know what he's doing. I know what the strategy is. And a lot of times because I delivered the strategy, I can see it happening out there. Not in that final. I, I really couldn't pinpoint what um, what Novak was trying to do. And I could certainly pinpoint exactly what Rafa <laughs> Excuse me, that's my dog. I'll let it no, you're fine. Somebody um, just talking about that. <laughs> 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 We have a pool, and um, a gentleman's just just come to clean it. Oh, no worries. Oh, no worries. Sure, point is, and they uh, they absolutely love to. And we have a trail right behind the house, and they absolutely love to bark at everybody. But as you can hear, as soon as they run out, they're all friendly. <laughs> exactly. It's it's behind the barriers that that gets dogs. Trust me, I, I have a uh, I have a dog myself. Um, but yeah, back back to our conversation about the uh, the zero three four, Charalis. That's something that you actually are advising everybody to practice more and spend more practice time on because yeah. like you say, the, the average practice time is 50 minutes, just hitting forehands, backhands, forehand, backhands. And, and I mean, serves and returns. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, historically all over the world, that's what a practice court looks like. My dog is now pulling at the door to come back in. <laughs> <laughs> come on, come on. There we go. Okay, we're all good now. All right. <laughs> it's my dog, Ash. She likes to be in here with me. Um, so, yeah, you know, the, the, the typical lesson historically is, is, is just lots of forehands and backhands. You know, you could be hitting them off the edge of the cruise ship. The coach doesn't, just feeding balls, doesn't care really where they land. It's all about just the technique and, and you know, oh, I hit 500 forehands today. I, I, hopefully I'm getting better. Um, and it's about getting more specific because we understand that the serve, the return, the serve plus one, the return plus one matter greatly to winning and losing. So, um you know, early on, as I was delivering this message, some people took it that Craig saying hit more winners, you know, early in the point or or just focus on zero through four. You know, it's that's not it at all. You know, what you're trying to do is survive it for, for the most part is to survive zero through four. So basically, there's four ways the point starts. It's your first serve. So. If I do a highlight reel of all of the best points from a match where you started with a first serve, we're going to see a ton of three-shot rallies. The serve went in, the return went in. You attacked with that ball, and then it was probably missed. And we're going to see a lot of points where the server initially goes to the net. The, the number one rally length we're approaching happens the most is three. Great serve, good first serve, short return, you're straight to the net, straight to the net. So as I do highlight reels for players, I say, here's all your best points hitting a first serve. They're full of three-shot rallies and they're full of approaching. Now, with second serves, none of that is there. You're actually on defense. So what I'm telling these players on second serves is, I don't want to make a highlight reel of your double faults. Let's take the double fault off the table. And I don't want you to make serve plus one errors. So it's very, it's the complete opposite. It's that let's survive this. Let's let's not shoot ourselves in the foot with a double fold. And, you know, this second serve returns getting rocked back at you. So let's block 
that ball. Let's stay in the point. Let's get it in down the middle of the court. Let's stay neutral. When you're returning first serves, if you can get it back in play and then defend probably with the backhand, um, you know, survive those first two shots, great. Second serve returns, you're attacking. You're going straight down the middle of the court. You're trying as much as possible to force a serve plus one error. And then on the next shot, you're looking for a forehand. So those four ways a point start, the highlight reels are absolutely different in every scenario. So yes, you're trying to either force an error with a first serve or a second serve return, or you're trying to survive with a second serve or a first serve or a first serve return. There you go. I mean, <laughs> honestly, I, I hope I hope if whoever's a tennis fan and listening to this, you, you better get on your serves and returns because that's that's the way it's going to go. Um, and, and just a quick story before we go on. Yeah, go. I it. used to play. I used to play every day as a kid. Every day, um, you know, as a junior in Albury, Australia, on the grass courts. And I remember this one day. You know, I was playing in a final, and I'd had. I was just exhausted. You know, I'd had you know the semi, the quarter, lots of matches. So. I just went out and we're playing on grass anyway. Normally I'd go out and you know, you rally, 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 hit some volleys, hit some serves, maybe a couple of returns, that's it. So I'm playing this final, I'm exhausted. So I just go out there and I, and I, I tell the person that I'm hitting with, I'm like, we're only hitting serves and returns. That's it. 20 minutes, only serves and returns. I'll serve for five, you serve for five. I'll switch change hands, I'll serve for five, you serve. I won the final easily. Um, I, I serve great, I return great, and, and that's basically it. If you can dominate those first two shots, you're off to the races. You, you, you stay ahead. Tennis is a game of staying ahead at, at every opportunity. Um, and, 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 you know, it was, I found it amazing that I could play such good tennis only warming up like that, but it made a real difference in that final. Yeah. I, I mean, golly, well, I'm glad you won that tournament. <laughs> um, I, I do want to switch gears here and go to the more mental side of things. And when I was looking at your stuff, two matches, uh, really come up to me, um, uh, Simona Halep for Serena Williams 2019 in Wimbledon and yeah. the 2020 uh, U.S. Open men's final Zverev and, and team. Yeah. Um, obviously different kind of con- uh, contrasting mental strategies, I guess you would say, because team had to grind and, and come back from that and, and all this other stuff. But Halep, uh, you mentioned, literally came out and you could just tell that this woman was just on fire. <laughs> I don't think she'll ever play a match as good as that, ever. And, and, and that's okay, because it was the final of Wimbledon against Serena Williams. Um, you know, I've, I've followed Simona closely. You know, Darren Cahill, you know, is a good friend and a great coach that, you know, works with her. So, you know, you, you, you pay interest to that. Um, you know, I was, I was at the, the Roland Garros final where she self-destructed against... Ostapenko? No, no, against Sloane Stevens. Sloane Stevens. I was at the Ostapenko final as well. But, um, you know, Simona Halep historically gets way too down on herself. She gets too negative. She can be doing great and lose a couple of points, and then she's staring at Darren, and she's going like this, and what's going on? And, you know, the storm cloud rolls in quickly, and it's, and it's too big, and she makes too much of the errors. And she readily admits that. Um, so, you know, when I saw how positive 
she was at the start. I, you, you just tell from her body language how she was up on her toes. Um, you know, the shoulders were back. She was ready for battle. You know, th- this is, she was so focused. She was so ready. You know, you know when you you say, okay, well, I, you know, a lot of times for matches where players can get scared and timid and they don't know what the outcome's going to be. And, you know, they get so nervous and so tight before a match. You know, if you think back to things or events that you just can't wait to be at. So, you know, sometimes I equate it to like going to a rock concert. Like, let's say you're going to go see Pearl Jam or, you know, a, a band that's just got so much energy and you just can't wait to get into that arena and listen to their songs that you know so well and feel the energy pumping through you and coursing through you. You know, you just can't wait to be out there. That's that's what it felt like Simona Health was like, which is so rare for tennis players because there's so many things to think about. There's so many ways to sabotage yourself. There's so many ways to be tight. Um, you know, we go back to Stan Wawrinka against um, Novak Djokovic in the recent US Open final. He said he, he cried. So broke down in tears before the final because um, he was so nervous. And, you know, the first set he's playing, uh, you know, he's playing so far back. He's just so tight. And that's more normal, more normal than what Simona Halep did. So it was incredibly refreshing to see her in that state of mind and, and to play to, to, to play at such an incredibly high level, but also carry herself with such confidence in that match. So it was it was amazing to see. Yeah, I mean, and just the stats. I mean, she lost the she lost the winners too. I mean, she uh, Serena had seventeen winners. Uh, uh, Simona had thirteen winners, but Simona also had five on the backhand side and five on the forehand side, and she only had three unforced errors while Serena had twenty six. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. it's just baffling, baffling. But most, uh, most times players are going to win the match and 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 hit le- less winners. That, that's pretty normal. We look at that and it's like, oh, that's crazy. So you know, just from a basic math standpoint, if you look at you know, the, the total amount of points, generally in tennis, it's about 70% uh, errors, 30% winners. So what you want to do is win the, the battle of the 70%, whatever that is, and it just happens to be errors. So you want to make less errors and win that battle. The other 30% slides, which is much smaller, less than half of that, um, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. And oftentimes players that are chasing and hitting more winners, they're having to give up more errors to collect those winners, there's there's a lot of errors associated with that. So, you know, that's um, that's something that you know I looked at early on. I'm like, how can you win a match hitting less winners? But now after looking at tens of thousands, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, um, yeah, and and switching, uh, keeping with the mental side, but switching to the 2020 U.S. Open final. Obviously, yeah, um, you. I mean, everybody was watching that. Uh, was watching that match. You saw how fast Zverev started, especially coming from uh, north to south. When you saw team try to be comfortable and go east to west with it, um, and Zverev was just his his net play was on on point. He was coming everything, and then. I I don't want to say comes the classic Zverev of getting too nervous and and not really choking, but. Zverev, when it was time to close the match, didn't 
he, I, I, I don't know what happened. Um, but, but I think you did point out a crucial point of the, uh, the momentum swing though, uh, mm-hmm. when team was serving down two, six, one, five, 30, 40, I think, I think you said it was like the 61st minute or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that, that change in momentum in Zverev, I mean, obviously the double faults didn't hurt Zverev. I mean, you talk about making a high, highlight reel of a double fault, so you, you, you can make one. But um, yeah, I mean, just the mental strength from team to be able to come back and with both men not being able to move in that in that tiebreaker, it was pretty spectacular. Yeah, it, it's, you know, it, sometimes you look at a US Open final and say, that's what we see that all the time in boys' 12s um, or girls' 12s or, you know, you know, the the emotional side of it, the mental emotional side was Dominic Team was as tight as he's ever been in his life. And that happens in junior tennis as well, where, you know, somehow before the match, you know, leading into it, everybody put Team as the favorite. He should win. And that was a perfect strategy from Zvera because it just, it released the pressure. It's like, well, I'm not favored to win, so I can go and actually play. Um, and team was favored to win, so he's like, oh my goodness, I should win. It, it's it's the expectation. So he he was just unbelievably tight when he went out there. And again, really common in junior tennis. So, what well, the best thing that happened to team is he got so far down that it just didn't make sense to be tight anymore. You're so close to losing the match that you finally, you finally can take a deep breath and, and let it go and just let all that tightness go. But, you know, you're trying, you're trying, you're trying. I should win. I hope I win. I'm the favorite. And 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 you can't hit a ball. You can't swing your racket. You can't hit a passing shot. And then you take Zverev on the other side as loose as a double-jointed goose, um, you know, for, for the start of the match because he has, you know, if he loses, so what? He's not the favorite. But all of a sudden, it's there. It's right there for the taking. And your opponent's really in trouble. And all of a sudden, if you start reaching for the finish line, big problems. So, you know, within, you know, a matter of, you know, seconds or, or, or a minute or so, um, you know, team went from being, I can't swing the racket. I have no chance of winning this final to, I'm so far down. I finally relaxed. I can now play. And, and the actual opposite went uh, on the other side of the Zverev and said, oh, my goodness, I've got a wounded opponent that all of a sudden now can play. And I'm so close to the finish line. All I want to do is win, 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 win. And the, the mental, emotional side is completely flipped for those guys. And, um, you know, I enjoyed the final. I enjoyed, you know, th- that mental and emotional battle that each of them were fighting. You know, a lot of people said, well, the, the quality of the match wasn't, what wasn't fantastic. I don't care. You know, the, the, the quality of the drama was off the charts. So, you know, that's, there's a lot of different ways to win tennis matches. And, and, you know, we haven't seen a final like that for a long time. You know, normally Novak or Rafa or, Rafa or Roger, they're, they're not, you know, tight as a drum when they're going out there. So um, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, I, I did as well. It was amazing. Um, all right. Craig, I'm going to hit you with a, a very bold prediction for this year, and you can obviously give me your thoughts, but okay. the the Italians are obviously doing something right, or have improved their game tremendously. So I predict that Yannick Sinner will break out and make a Grand Slam semifinal this year. What are your thoughts? 
How far do you know at Roland Garros? Quarters? Or round of 16? Uh, one of the two. Um, can't, don't have it uh, off the Certainly top. Certainly round of 16. I don't know whether he made. <coughs> he lost to Djokovic, correct? Um, I believe so. Let's see. He made yeah, he up. made the no no he made the quarterfinal and he lost to Rafa in three sets. But the first set was seven six. Yeah, quarters. So he only has to do one better than he's already done. Um, so in some ways, that's not that big. That's not that big of a prediction. But you know the the, the kid's young. The kid's nineteen. Um, what's his ranking now? About thirty-ish, somewhere around there. Yeah. So he was so. Um, all the seeds of the Australian Open, I th- I think he's 33. So all the seeds of the Australian Open were listed. And then at the bottom, they said, next up, Sinner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, this year, you know, I would say that's a 50-50 bet, actually. I would say tough, tough to make a semi, but he's already made a quarter. So... You, you pick a you pick a good horse. You know he's only young, but he's so mature. He you know the ball explodes off his racket. Um, yeah, why not? Why not? Let, let's go with that. He's going to have four cracks at it. He's doing great. He's already already shown massive promise. So yeah, I, I would I would say it's a fifty fifty bet, and I'll I'll go with you on that. Um, <sighs> Why not? All right. I, I I got Craig in my corner, ladies and gentlemen. So yeah. so ho- hopefully, Yannick, you can uh, you can make me proud. But talking about the majors here, got to talk about the Australian Open, if it's even happening. No, there is so much drama in your home country yeah. with all the players and everything. What, yeah. what are your thoughts on that? Um, the Australian government controls everything, period. Uh, the Victorian government controls the COVID cases. The players had it in writing that it would be a possibility that if you were on the plane and somebody on the plane contracted COVID or tested positive, it was a possibility that you would have to um, do 14 days. Uh, You know, it was talked about in a call. So players that maybe hoped that wouldn't happen. um, and, And certainly, you know, Tennis Australia came out and said, it's not a guarantee. It's not a guarantee. You know, and, and we don't have the final authority. We don't have the final say on that. It, it's it's the health authorities that do. So, you know, and now we see, you know, one of the Spanish girls testing positive after day seven, you know, which which immediately says, this is the reason why you guys have to do a 14-day lockdown. You know, this is a girl that said, I'm fine on day one. I, sh- I shouldn't, you know, I, I want to go practice. Let me practice. I'm fine on day four. But she's sick on day seven. So... You know, I think the health authorities of, of, in, in Australia did exactly the right thing. You know, Novak put forth those, um, you know, the wish list of, you know, maybe we get, can we move people into private housing? Can we do, can, can we make all these adjustments? It's a dead flat no to all of that. You know, the, 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 the real issue here that we've got to also remember is there are so many, there's tens of thousands of Australians that are living overseas at the moment, that want to come back, that can't. They are priority number one. They are That's their country, or it's our country. And, and to say that you can't fly back to your own country, that's a really big deal. You know, you've got family there, you've got kids there. Sometimes there's weddings or there's funerals or, you know, there, there's business that you need to be there. 
You need to be home. And there's people that can't get home. They are priority number one for the Australian government. Priority number one. So the fact that, you know, Craig Tiley has been able to even put together um, the Australian Open and losing tens of millions of dollars paying for all of the uh, the, the hotel and all of the airfares that come over, you know, yes, they've got a slash fund that they've, you know, very smartly put together over the last couple of years for something like this. Um, but I, I think once it's once it's all said and done, you know, it's it, it, I think it'll all come out fine. Now, the flip side of this is you've got to be able to let players express, express themselves as well. You know, it, you can't say, OK, no going on social media, no complaining. I mean, you know, just imagine being a player and you were so excited to go to Australia for the Open. You've trained for three weeks or a month. You've hit the gym. You know, you've got your body in peak physical condition. You arrive there. You know, you, you've tested negative the whole way through and they say, no, you've got 14 days of hard lockdown. Then you've got one day to get ready for, eight, for ATP Cup and eight or nine days to the Open. You'd be devastated. I mean, just put yourself in their shoes. You've got to be devastated. And, and it's... It's okay. It's okay for them to come out and say, this is really rough for me to have to deal with, uh, you know, mentally, mentally more than anything. So, yes, we've got to let players vent a little bit and, and, and let that out. Yes, there's an education process to say, hey, this is the reason it's happening um, because a player tested positive after seven days. So, you know, th there's drama all the way around. Yes, Novak's got a better deal with his outside balcony in Adelaide. Uh, there's no doubt about that. If you're sitting in Melbourne, you're going, I can't even open my window. How does Novak, you know, get this preferential treatment? So, you know, there's there's problems there as well. But I think when it's all said and done, when we've got through it, I mean, how just think about the elation of these 70 odd players that after 14 days when they come out of COVID, how happy they're going to be to get back to a normal life. And and I think a lot of them will actually play really good because they've just had 14 days of total adversity, which should help them on the tennis court. It's like, you know, my life got turned upside down. Playing a tennis match and, and having adversity really isn't as bad as I thought it was. So I think when it's all said and done, um, you know, everybody will be, you know, will be going up and down and having problems and, and, and getting through it. And, and I think at the, at the end of the day, we'll all be saying thanks to Tennis Australia, thanks to the Victorian government, thanks to the Australian government for allowing this event to happen. You know, we greatly appreciate it. Yeah, and 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 once it's all said and done, obviously in terms of quality of tennis, who do you think uh, who do you think lifts the trophy? It's really simple. It's really simple. Um, you the, you get, for the man, you give it to Novak. You don't, you know. I, I don't even. I think it's almost, <laughs> and this is going to sound crazy. It's almost disrespectful to Novak to even have a conversation about who else is is in the running because Novak's won it eight of sixteen times. You know, he he's in form. He's the number one player in the world. He's won it the last two years. You know, until Novak gets knocked out. You know, it's it's one guy in the field. And at the moment, you take the one guy. You know, I remember having a friendly wager with somebody um, at the US Open, and I said, I'll take Rafa. You can take that the 127. I don't care. I got Rafa. And Rafa won it that year. And it's simply because he came out you know, in Toronto um, in a lead-up tournament and says, I have set my sights on winning the US Open this year. That's all I need to hear. 
he, you know, as soon as he says, this is, this is a major priority for me, I'm like, I'm all in with this guy. So for the man, um, it's Novak. And until Novak loses, it's Novak. And it's no one but Novak. Um, on the ladies' side, who knows? You know, who knows who's going to be more adversely affected by being in lockdown? Who's, you know, wh- whose game is going to be be playing great? It's, it's far more open um, on the women's side. I have no idea. I would, I would honestly just, I, I'd put 10 players in a hat and I'd pick one out and I'd tell you who it is, Simona Halep or, you know, Pliskova or, you know, who, whoever it is. I, I don't know. I don't know who's going to win there. Yeah, well, I, I feel like with every tournament, it's always a toss-up with the women. The women are always a lot which more. Is, which I think is great. You know, the men is always a lock, and the women, it's much open. I think that, that, that you know, the, the contrast is good for our sport. No, I think so. I think so as well. It's uh, it's pretty amazing. Obviously, um, I, I do want to talk about uh, my greatest of all time, not your statistic greatest of all time, but Roger Federer, obviously not playing the Australian Open. How, how do you figure? How do you figure he comes back this year from from that second. injury? Ash, something's happening outside, and Ash, I'm going to leave the door open so she can come. There we go. Come back and forth. I, I need to bring her up here so you can see. See, see Ash. Um, sorry, the, the question was about Roger Federer. Yeah, yeah. So um, obviously, the um, Federer is not playing in, in the Australian Open, but he is coming back from injury. You know, took the the rest of the year off last year to really get his health back. Uh, how, how do you feel he comes back this year in terms of tennis? I think really good. You know, he, he we've had this situation once before, and he came back and started winning slams. Um, you know, I, I think. You know, Roger's always going to be Roger. He's he's taking care of his body. Uh, you know, he's, he's he's so wide on his feet. It's not like Rafa. You know that 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 the body gets punished. So you know, Roger's body's it's a young body. It doesn't. It, you know, it moves around the court very efficiently. Um, you know, he's he, and he's fresh. So you know, I, I'm I'm not you know putting Roger um, out to pasture at all until Roger does that himself. I think his game style um, of, is, you know, very, very efficient. I think, you know, his body has been taken care of. Yes, he's, he's taken care of the injuries. Yes, he's fresh. I think Roger will do just fine. Yeah, I definitely think he's got more majors in him. That's, yeah. that's, that's you know, for sure. It, it, a little bit of luck, a little bit of luck, but, you know, he grows another leg when, you know, if Novak gets knocked out early or Rafa gets knocked out early or one of those guys isn't playing because of injury and, and they're gone. I mean, you know, he's, he's like, he's grows another foot. So I, 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 the field's mine. I'm, I'm going to go take it. Well, yeah, I feel like the, the, they all do when when the others are knocked out, you know, the big three, um, obviously. But no, you got guys like Team coming on the scene. He just won his first major. It took took a while. And Team's not really next gen because he is like 27. He's sure. not one of the one of his next gen guys. Um, I do want to bring it back, though, to uh, to kind of round it out here with um, – sort of the state of American of American tennis, because you do see these young talents. You do see the TFOs. You do see the, uh, mm-hmm. um, the Mackie McDonald's. You do see the Fritzes, right? Yeah. And now JJ Wolf and his beautiful hair is bursting on the scene. I actually saw JJ live play at Ohio state and he's phenomenal. Yeah. Um, but what, what do you think the state of American tennis is right now? And what, what could uh, they really be doing better? Well, 
congratulations to the USDA for putting so many young guys, um, you know, on the scene, you know, basically they're between maybe they're, you know, 40 and 140, you know, they've, they've done a really good job of launching them into, into that stratosphere. Um, and, you know, they're still very young and they're still learning the craft. And yes, some other guys have kind of popped up. Zverev did better when he was younger, um, but they're not far off. I think, I think the next stage is like, okay, how do we get Fritz or TFO um, or Mackenzie McDonough? How do, how do we get them to 20? How are they ranked 20 in the world? And then how do we get them to 10? You know, that's, that's the next step. And it's, it's all about, you know, they're already so close, but it's such big steps to take those last, last little steps to go from 40, 50 to 25 to 20. Um, for me, it's all about a deeper understanding of the opponent and making sure that when they're out there playing the matches, it's a combination of doing things that they want to do and also matching up their game against, uh, against those opponents. I mean, I've coached against them, um, you know, pretty regularly throughout the season last year. And, you know, they still have holes. There's still, as I'm putting a game plan together, and, you know, it's like most players, you know, Novak's got holes, Roger's got holes, Rabbit's got holes, everyone does. But um, I would say for these younger guys, it's about understanding where the holes are and making them less of a hole, you know, strengthening those areas, um, really paying attention and understanding why they win t- tennis matches. Um cutting down on the looser errors, which again is just is studying the craft. It's examining their matches. It's making sure that, you know, they've got somebody that's doing strategy analysis for them so that they are not guessing on why they're winning and losing these matches. So, um, you know, there, there's a, you know, we, we, there's a good way to understand it is that you look at the top 20 in the world. There's only 20 players that can fit in there, but how many are good enough? How many are good enough? to be in the top 20. You know, some players have gone in there for brief periods and gone back out. Some players are emerging and pushing there. So let's say there's 40 players, 40 players that are all eligible to be a top 20 player in the next couple of months that that all could find themselves in there. So the first problem for these guys is there's 40, there's, there's 40 people holding their hand up. There's only 20 spots, 20 people are eligible, but they're still gonna miss out. They're good enough, but they're still gonna miss out. So you've got to be, you know, on on either the lucky side of that, or you've got to either work hard, or you've got to work smarter. And so, you know, having that that realization and understanding, how do you create that edge? You create that edge by by studying by studying your matches, by studying opponents, by making your weaknesses less, and by by sharpening the sword and making the strengths even better. Yeah, and and they are breaking the. Uh, breaking the American classic American stereotype of big forehand, big serve. And that's it from like John Isner and, and, uh, and Opelka. But, um, well, Jesus, Craig, uh, I, God, I can't appreciate it enough for you stopping by the, uh, my pleasure, the KO to convo. So it's, uh, it's really awesome. Many thanks to Craig for joining me on the KO to convo today was an absolute 
pleasure having him on and we had a great conversation if you want to check out all of his work you can head on over to his website braingametennis.com all of his strategy courses and match breakdowns will be on there it's a lot of content so you're sure to be entertained uh, just like me you can also follow him on twitter at braingametennis he's pretty active on there and and always sharing uh, very insightful tennis related uh, stuff so definitely head on over there as well thank you so much for listening and we'll see you on the next episode immersive music take us home